The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Good morning, Orchard Bible Church. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we will be today. It's also going to be really helpful if you have these sermon outlines side by side with your Bible as we make our, our way through the passage. 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read for our scripture reading this morning, just one verse, verse 3. This is the word of God. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Let's pray for our time together. Our Father, We think of all the restrictions around in our society right now, and we're grateful that your word is not chained. We pray that you would unleash your truth on us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might be faithful as a church in the way we lead and the way we follow. For Jesus' sake, amen. In March of 2002, the Queen Mother died peacefully in her sleep at the age of 101. She had seen the beginnings of two centuries and all the changes in between. Seven months earlier, in September of 2001, almost 3,000 people died in the terrorist attacks carried out by Muslim extremists. Except for the loss of life, these two events couldn't seem farther apart. But as Claire Smith notes in her book, both of these events brought one particular issue to the forefront of our culture. Talk radio, the front pages of the newspapers, and TV news were all discussing whether women should or should not cover their heads. After 9-11, head coverings were a familiar sight and topic in the media. We heard disturbing stories on the news of women with veils or head coverings verbally abused in various places in the world. But a Christian practice made headlines as well. The question of wearing hats at the Queen Mother's funeral was such a cultural dilemma that an official announcement from the palace was needed. And the direction given was that although women had always worn hats at the royal church services in the past, this time... They didn't have to. So some did, some didn't. In our passage today, Paul addresses the issue of head coverings in the church. And for some of us here, head coverings are a common practice, or at least something we know that others might do. For others of us, this seems just as foreign to us as hats at royal funerals or the experiences of of Muslim women. But what is far more important for us to understand this morning than head coverings themselves is God's good design in the differences between men and women and why Paul would be concerned about these things in the church. So first, in your outline, I want to lay some groundwork so we can understand where Paul is coming from in these instructions. So number one in your outline, this, first, the enti- this entire first point is the biblical groundwork because the amount of groundwork necessary has increased significantly. Just in the last five to ten years, it's almost unbelievable. 
I don't think even the most pessimistic of culture watchers 20 years ago would have predicted where we are today. A generation ago, the controversy was whether men and women had different roles, whether God had assigned specific responsibility appropriate to each gender in the home and in the church. But today, the controversy is much more fundamental, isn't it? It's whether there's such a thing as gender. Are we truly created male and female in God's image, or are those just categories we've invented as a society, and our gender something we can self-assign at will? So let me quickly outline what God said in his word about these things. Letter A. <clears throat> First, let's consider... God's good design in creation. In the first chapters of the Bible, we read that God created human beings in his image. And he created them as two distinct sexual genders, male and female. Both are created in God's image, okay? So, so there's equality. Adam was created first. No suitable helper was found for him. Eve was created from Adam's rib or from his side, we could say. Many believe this illustrates equality. She wasn't created from his feet or his head, but out of his side, both equally reflecting God's image, male and female, he created them. Eve was, was created as a helper, it says for Adam, who was the head or leader. And everything was great. There were no problems at all in the relationship. Until Genesis chapter 3, which we'll speak of in a minute. In the New Testament, Paul looks back at this creation account to explain role distinctions in two specific areas. The first is the marriage relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls the husband the head or authority. And this headship is not a top-down dictatorship but one modeled after the leadership example of Jesus. The husband is to lead his wife self-sacrificially, like Christ gave his life for the church, so the husband sacrifices his selfish wants and desires at the altar of leading his wife that she might flourish spiritually in the truth. And the wife is to follow his Christ-like leadership. The man leads his wife in godliness. The wife submits to his leadership as he does so. So a biblical marriage is an illustration of the gospel, which is this. God humbled himself in the person of Jesus to take responsibility for the sins of his bride, the church. Those who repent and put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Christ was not the cause of our problems, but he took responsibility for them. Likewise, a godly husband will humble himself and take responsibility for the problems in his marriage and in his family, even if he's not the cause of those problems, as he, though he often is. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, both Adam and Eve sinned. They both hid themselves from God's presence, didn't they? Yet God called out to the man, where are you? He went to the husband as the head, the one bearing responsibility in the marriage, the one bearing the weight of leadership for the well-being of his family, which Adam failed to do. The second context of gender distinctions where Paul references this creation account is in church leadership. 
In 1 Timothy 2, Paul gives instruction that the leadership and teaching of the church as a whole should be done by men. Now, I don't have to tell you how unpopular both of these teachings are today. Anyone who holds and obeys Paul's instruction will be labeled a dinosaur by the popular culture, or worse, oppressive or evil. But it's critically important for Christians to understand, in terms of Bible interpretation, that in both of these cases, marriage and the church, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, Paul does not appeal to an ad hoc cultural situation, but back to this account of creation, the original ideal before the fall even happened, God's good design that transcends all cultures, all times. Now, unfortunately, something devastating happened in Genesis chapter 3 that severely compromised the goodness of how God's design plays out in both of these contexts the marriage and and the church. The fall resulting in our sinful nature inherent to us now confuses and distorts everything. So I want to consider these design distortions. This is letter B in your outline, resulting from the events in Genesis chapter 3. There's so much, excuse me, there's so much I wish I could say here. But I need to be brief because this is all introduction, isn't it? We need to get to the passage And I'm going to confine my comments to just a couple of pastoral sensitivities that I want to make sure each of you understands clearly. The first is that male leadership has been corrupted by the fall in manifold ways. So as we think about these biblical categories of authority structure, headship and submission, I want to be very clear. No one is ever called to submit to abuse in this relationship. Let me address you ladies in particular. Distorted leadership in the home can come in various forms. It can come in men being passive and not taking the lead. It can also come through abuse of that leadership. If you're in a situation, beloved sister, where you're being treated by your husband or anyone in spiritual authority in a way that's not consistent with how the Bible describes male leadership, which is to be like Jesus, Please reach out to someone, a friend, one of the elders, or if necessary, the police. It's never okay for someone in spiritual authority, whether a husband or a church leader of some kind, to act in ways unbecoming a follower of Jesus. And it's not loving of you, even to the abusive person, to allow them to continue to sin against you. So keeping something like that a secret doesn't help anyone. That's not loving. So please reach out. No one is commanded to remain in an environment of spiritual authority where they are unsafe. The second distortion of God's design I want to address is, is, the, is that of sex and gender. We have all been affected by the fall in different ways, even sexually. Without exception, every single one of us is sexually broken in some way. Whether it's battling temptation related to uh, someone who is not your spouse, or battling same-sex attraction, or maybe even confusion about your own gender. All these things are results from the fall. And we all struggle 
in one form or another. We're all susceptible to the lies of the enemy, the lies of our culture. Different lies, perhaps, but lies nonetheless. And I want to invite you, again, to bring others into your struggle. Here's what Satan loves. Secrets. Hiding. Private struggle. That's where his lies flourish. The Holy Spirit is about transparency. He's about truth and one anothering with compassion through these struggles, through these things. We are all broken in different ways. So again, please reach out to a friend or one of the elders. Don't go it alone. That's not the Christian life. Now, I know that was a lot of time spent on the groundwork, but especially in today's age and in our culture, it's just as important, I think, to understand what Paul isn't saying as much as what he is saying. So as we embark on our passage this morning, we know there are many distortions of God's design that affect each of us differently. But here's the thing. These distortions of the design do not make the design bad. Okay, God's design is good. It's very good. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can and should be reflected in our lives, our marriages, and in our church. Now, at least some of the Corinthians were reversing these roles somehow, trying to abolish the distinctions between male and female. So Paul needs to remind them that these distinctions are ordained by God. And and so that's the background for what Paul is going to be addressing in these verses. So let's look at number two in your outline, the principle of authority in God's design. This is starting, let's look look in your own Bibles and read with me starting in verse two. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, And the head of Christ is God. Now first, when Paul says traditions here, he's not using that word like we normally think of it. Like, hey, we started a tradition of opening gifts on Christmas Eve. Let's continue that tradition. That's not what he's saying. These are apostolic traditions directly from the spirit of Jesus. Like the Lord's Supper would be an example of the kind of tradition he's talking about. These truths about church life and the Christian life that were revealed to the apostle by the Lord himself. And he says, because they maintain what he has told them, it seems most people in church were already following this instruction regarding these maintaining these distinctions and manifesting in head coverings. But there were probably a minority, there was probably a minority that were not doing that. And they were raising questions for, for everybody. So we see headship here in verse 3. Head means authority. The the principle here is voluntary submission to your authority. So he says the head of every man is Christ. Okay, no problem there. Christ has the authority over all the human race. But then he says the head of a wife is her husband. Now, feminist or egalitarian scholars have come up with ingenious ways to try to make this verse not mean what it says. I'm not going to cover those, but the arguments are unpersuasive. Head means authority in this case. So now in the Greek, woman, wife, man, husband are the same words. So the ESV rightly translates that the head of the wife is her husband, as we see in Ephesians 5. 
Women are not called to submit to men in general, but to their own husband. That's really important. And also very important, note this does not imply inferiority. Because look at the third thing he says. The head of Christ is God. Unless you're going to contradict 2,000 years of, of Orthodox theology, Christ is not inferior to the Father. He's totally equal to the Father in his essence and his deity. There are no attributes the Father has that the Son does not also have. Yet he submitted himself to the authority and headship of the Father. Likewise, a wife's subordination to her husband's leadership does not mean she's inferior to him. Like within the Godhead, this distinction is one of role, not one of essence. There's no inherent distinction between men and women regarding personal worth or dignity or intellect or giftedness, or spirituality, leadership ability, redemptive value. Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female in these distinctions. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This equality in essence, but difference in role, is true really among any human authority structure. I do not consider myself inferior to my boss at work. But he has a different role than I do, and I'm under his authority. Christ is subordinate to the Father, but he's also equal with him. They are distinct and have different roles. That's the principle Paul is articulating here. Likewise, wives, again, in not any way inferior to their husbands, it is not demeaning to Christ. It's not demeaning to Christ to stand under the authority of, of the Father. And it's not demeaning to a woman to stand under the authority of her husband. It also, again, doesn't mean women are inherently less gifted at leadership or teaching. Let's be honest. In many cases, they're more gifted. Nevertheless, in the family, in the church, she has a different role. That's the timeless abiding principle behind Paul's instruction to the Corinthians. So let's consider these commands regarding head coverings, which is the visible sign of this principle. Number three in your outline, let's look at, look, look at the reasons Paul gives for visible signs of God's design. Let's start reading in verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife, a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, because she, it, since is, but since it is disgraceful, for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, first there's some debate about the context here of Paul's instruction. For what situation are these commands relevant? The covering or not covering the head. Some believe that since Paul commands women to be silent in the church at the end of chapter 14, that the instruction here in chapter 11 must not be talking about the gathered assembly. Because women would obviously not be silent since they would be speaking when they prophesy. That's possible, but I don't think it's persuasive. An overwhelming majority of conservative scholars believe, as I do, that the context here is the public gathering of believers, the, the corporate assembly of the local church. This seems to be the case for chapters 11 through 14, where Paul's concerned for orderly, structured worship in the assembly. We see the Lord's Supper, which is clearly a corporate thing immediately after these verses. We see how spiritual gifts should be used 
uh, all the way through chapter 14, especially the, the gift of prophecy, which is mentioned here, given to edify the community of believers, not something for private use. We will tackle this in much more detail when we get to chapter 14, both on what Paul means there regarding the silence of women and also what this gift of prophecy is. What does it mean that people were prophesying in the church? Do we still do that today? Uh, that's a great question. I don't think we do, but we will cover that in detail when we get to chapter 14. For now, we want to focus on this principle of God's gender distinction design and the sign of that distinction, which Paul describes here for the Corinthians as head coverings. Why this visible sign? Why, why is this important for the believers in Corinth? Paul gives three reasons. The first we just read is letter A in your outline, showing honor versus dishonor. He says, if a man covers his head, he dishonors his head. Now, because of the way Paul words this, the head he would be dishonoring could either be Christ, who is the husband's head or authority, or himself, his physical head. It's likely Paul's intentionally meaning both. Sort of like in Proverbs where we read that when a child is rebelling against his parents, it brings shame both on himself and his parents. In other words, Paul is saying to the men of the church, if you cover your head in worship, you're dishonoring both yourself and Christ, your authority. A man would be drawing attention to himself and away from Christ. Likewise for the women, to not cover their head was to bring shame upon themselves and their husbands, for those who were married. So in the case of women, covering their heads symbolized submission to God's design of this authority structure. Now, Paul goes further in verses 5 and 6, and he says, if you don't cover your heads, ladies, it's as if your hair was shaven off. Well, a woman with her head shaved was universally acknowledged as disgraceful in that culture because she would look like a man. That's, that's Paul's point. It obliterated the distinction between the genders. So Paul's making a comparison to something everyone would have understood. If you're going to look like a man, you might as well look like a man. Shave your head. Which again hits at the underlying principle Paul's concerned about. The blurring of distinction between the genders and undermining God's design. Now, in those days, in Corinthian culture, there were a couple of additional facts that may be relevant to note here and, and go beyond this gender distinction, but I'll mention them both. First, Roman men would pull a toga over their head when bowing to worship pagan gods. So perhaps it was particularly shameful to bring this pagan practice into the church. That's possible. The second cultural fact is that in those days, a woman's hair was considered a primary temptation for a young man. So for a married woman to go out into public without a head covering would be immodest, like an indication she was available. So these cultural issues may have exacerbated the dishonor they were exhibiting. A second reason for this visible sign of God's design, let her be in your outline, reflecting the creation order. Let's read together starting in verse 7. For a man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. 
For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So both men and women created equally again in the image of God, Genesis 1. But there's something unique about the man's role that bears God's glory in the way he was given sovereignty and responsibility over creation. The woman's authority is delegated by God through her husband. Now, it doesn't say she's the image of man. Okay, she's the image of God, just like her husband. But she reflects the glory of her husband. She enables him to fulfill the role that God has given him. The word glory here likely relates to the word honor in the previous verses, meaning something similar. So bringing glory and honor to the head is contrasted with bringing shame and dishonor to the head. Then he says, the woman was created from man. Again, Genesis 2, out of his side. The woman completed creation as male and female. And the woman was created for man. Again, Paul's alluding to this role of the helper in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Not inferiority, just difference in role and purpose. So the order of God's good design is reflected when they demonstrated these gender distinctions with the sign of head coverings. That's the second reason. The third reason Paul gives is the least clear of the three. Letter C in your outline, because of the angels. Verse 10, let's read this. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. It's really difficult to know exactly what Paul means. Here are a couple reasonable thoughts, I think. The angels were present at creation of Adam and Eve. We know this from Job 38, for instance. The angels also observe our worship, Ephesians 3. So it would make sense that angels desire to see God's design and order in creation maintained in our worship. Probably something along those lines. For all these reasons, reflecting God's design with visible signs is important. Now at this point, with all this talk about the distinctions between the sexes, Paul gives an important reminder. This is number four in your outline. Men and women are equal and need each other. Let's look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. So in this nevertheless statement, Paul anticipates the very thing we might read into what he's been saying. Are men more important than women? No. This is a critical qualification to, to his instruction here on the differences between the sexes. And that qualification is that men and women are equally important. We need each other. No one's inferior. First of all, every man is born of woman, totally dependent on his mother. In a marriage, husbands and wives are not independent. They depend on each other. The church is the same way. There's an interdependency of men and women, isn't there? I, I, I think of the, the deacons and, and the ladies carrying connections. They complement each other. This is the way various ministries, orchard ministries, complement each other uh, at, uh, in our church and make up the life of the church. So we would be a weak and incomplete church without both men and women. We need each other. So Paul is reiterating, lest anyone misunderstand, there's no inequality here, but we are complementary. He says, all things are from God. Okay, we're equally dependent on him. Now, finally, the last part of our passage. 
Number five in your outline, invisible signs. Common sense and cultural norms. Let's look at verse 13 together and read to the end. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is to her glory, it is her glory. For her hair is, is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So he closes by saying, judge for yourselves. I mean, in other words, just use your head. Forgive the pun. Seriously, he's saying this is common sense. These distinctions are pretty obvious. He says to them, ask yourself, is it proper? Now, this word proper, it's not a sin issue or holiness or obedience in, in some way. It means what's fitting, what, what makes sense, or what is seemly in their culture. If, you, if you're a woman, look and dress like a woman. If you're a man, look and dress like a man. Judge for yourselves. Pay attention to the signals of the culture. Have awareness of what is perceived as disgraceful. And he references nature in, in verse 14. What is natural? Physiologically, women are naturally able to grow longer hair. In the first century, most men cut their hair short. Some men, like the Spartans, for instance, had more shoulder length. But just like today, in general, there was a difference in hair length between men and women. Women's hair in that culture, as in most cultures, was a mark of their beauty, part of what makes them feminine and distinct from men. Again, there's likely a minority group in Corinth that's not following this practice, and Paul addresses them by saying, if you're going to be contentious about this, if you're going to argue about it, know this, every church I've planted and every church I'm aware of follows this practice. So Corinth is not to be an exception. All the churches at this time reflected this visible sign of God's good design with this head covering practice. Now in verse 15, there's one more thing here. Paul says hair is given to the woman for a covering. Now some have taken this to mean that the hair itself is the covering. No need to cover their heads with something else since her hair is the covering. That might be convincing if this was the only verse in the passage, but... Unfortunately, that interpretation would contradict basically everything else we've read. So it's more likely that Paul's just saying this. Because she's been given long hair, it's fitting to have a covering. God has given her hair, which is her glory, and makes her feminine. And accordingly, reflecting this design, it should be covered. Now that's the end of our passage. So let's think about this now in the next few minutes, in terms of application for us today. This is number six in your outline. As we think about bridging Paul's instruction to the Corinthians and what we need to learn today, Leland Riken is, is very helpful, I think, when he describes what Paul is doing from a literary perspective. He says this, Particularized details are intended to express universal principles. So we need to determine the universal principles as distinct from the particular details of the application in Corinth, which was head coverings. This is admittedly difficult to do because the theology and culture are so intertwined in Paul's instruction, aren't they? He talks about head coverings in the first century church. 
while alluding to theological arguments about a universal principle. So the timeless principle and the cultural practice merged together in the text. That's one of the reasons this, this matter is so debated. I think one thing that we can agree on as Bible believers is this. The underlying principle of gender distinction and headship is of much more importance and significance than whether or not this particular sign of those distinctions, head coverings, applies to us today. Wearing head coverings today is something we can agree to disagree about with our brothers and sisters at Orchard. Orchard members have various beliefs about head coverings today, and that's okay. Those beliefs should never divide us. So let's address this lesser important issue first. Letter A, visible signs of God's design today. In the first century, if a woman did not wear a head covering, it sent a clear signal that she was rejecting the authority of God's design. There are certain places today where that would be the case. But you would probably agree that not many in our culture would think a woman is in rebellion if she doesn't cover her head. The blurring of distinctions between genders are different in various cultures. If I wore a dress while I preached today, for instance, it would send a very clear message that I'm dressing like a woman, blurring the distinctions. If I wore a kilt, you might think the same thing. But if I preached in a kilt in Scotland, maybe not. In many cultures today, covering or uncovering the head doesn't communicate anything about the relationship between husbands and wives or male leadership. In some cultures, it does. It certainly did in the first century. Paul says, judge for yourselves. If a woman did not cover her head in Corinth, it brought shame. And because of the suggestive nature of not covering the head in that culture, perhaps another application today might be about women dressing modestly. A wife should not dress in a manner that suggests she's available. So in terms of the sign of head coverings today, we believe this is a matter of conscience. This is not something that should ever divide us. It's something that Orchard members can agree to disagree about. We want to be charitable and understand why some in our church think about this issue differently than ourselves and respect them for it. Accordingly, the elders have actually gone to write a paper on this very subject that explains some of the main views about head coverings today that some in our church might hold. And, and this short paper uh, is available to you on request if you're interested. Now, for the more important point of our passage, the principle, this is letter B, the principle of God's design today. I hope you can see that while wisdom is required to discern the appropriate signs of these distinctions today in our culture, the abiding principle of God's good design doesn't change. Paul is very clear that gender is not a social construct. It's something rooted in God's creation, designed from the beginning, and it's very good. Men and women are equal, created in God's image, yet they complement each other with different roles. We should not blur the distinctions between the sexes. We should honor the authority that God has given us. God has ordained that in marriage and in the church, men have the responsibility to lead, and women have a complementary and supporting role. In the church, women minister under the authority of male leadership. 
Later in chapter 14, we'll cover in more detail what the implications of this are for orchard ministry. But I'll just tell you right now, wisdom is required. We do our best to understand the scriptures and apply these principles faithfully. We certainly do not want to be driven by antiquated Christian cultural norms. We want to be rooted in the scripture. And many times it requires wisdom, depending on the situation. But the underlying principle to Paul's teaching remains constant in every age and culture. The God-designed roles for men and women in marriage in the church should be preserved in every culture in every time period. These role distinctions are not to be ignored or apologized for. They're to be honored and celebrated. The Bible doesn't give us the option to dismiss as cultural this underlying abiding principle of God's distinctions in gender design. It's something rooted in unfallen creation. And it's not a coincidence that nearly all mainline liberal denominations that have obliterated the distinctions between male and female and have gone to ordain women pastors and church leaders also came to ordain so-called same-sex marriages. Because why not? They already overruled God's good design in the scripture. And there's no longer any biblical authority on sexual gender issues. They have sawed off the branch that they were sitting on. There's no biblical authority left to go back to. And eventually, as unfortunately many have done, abandoned the gospel and can no longer rightfully be called a church. Our emphasis in this series has been on faithfulness. We want to be faithful as a church to God's good design. Because if we ignore it, as many churches have done, it will be to our peril. Nevertheless, we need to understand and be sympathetic to how unpalatable this is to our culture. In part, because of how poorly it has been modeled by Christian men. We need to do better, orchard brothers and sisters. Leading sacrificially like Jesus is not easy, brothers, but it is commanded. Let me close with a story from Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke. He was seated on an airplane awaiting departure as other people uh, were still boarding. And a woman made her way down the aisle and she had all kinds of feminist paraphernalia. Magazines decorated with buttons and whatnot. And he had an empty seat next to him. And of course he was wondering as she walked closer if she would be seated beside him. And sure enough, she did. And as they started talking, she asked him what he did for a living. And over the years, Waltke said, he's learned that if he wanted a conversation... (laughs) He would answer that he teaches Semitics, which is the study of ancient Near Eastern languages, because people would usually say, what's that? And a conversation would begin. If he did not want a conversation, he would say, I teach the Bible, because that was usually a conversation killer. Well, this time, he really wanted to close the door on any possibility of a conversation. So he answered, I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, she blew up, and she went on a 15-minute tirade of how much she hated the Bible, hated the Apostle Paul, especially his oppression of women. 
And after 15 minutes or so, Waltke said, I don't think you understand the kind of male leadership that's actually being taught in the Bible. And she settled down a little bit. And he continued explaining to her that the Bible does not call us to take up a mallet and beat people into submission. It calls us to take out a towel and wash the other person's feet. That's the kind of leadership that Jesus taught us. And after explaining this, tears started to come down the woman's face. And she looked down at the magazines and the buttons and pamphlets. And she said quietly, if I could see that, I would throw all of this away. You see, brothers and sisters, in order for people to understand God's good design, they have to see it modeled. The distortions of this design are all around us, aren't they? Even within the church and within the Christian marriages and families, abuses and selfish behavior that cause people to reject the design, reject the Bible, reject the gospel. They have to see you, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Your, your headship modeled after his headship. Giving yourself up for her, leading her sacrificially that she might flourish. They have to see churches where women are honored and thriving and treated as essential to the ministry because they are essential to the ministry. Let's not add to the reasons people reject the gospel by failing to model this. Let's attract them to it. Because in a world where God's design has been distorted, almost beyond recognition, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, they are desperate to see it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your good design. Give us grace and strength to reflect it in our marriages and in our church for the glory of Christ alone. Amen.